And welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. This is episode 82. We've got Adam Meekins and Mark Laslett discussing lower back pain, deadlifting, and spinal flexion. Let's go. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Okay, team, welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, then thank you. I'm Dave Elliott, and together with Rob Bevan, we are the co-hosts of this show. So typically, we pitch these episodes to a non-clinical audience. However, this episode is a special one. So if you aren't a clinician, whilst we would love you to listen, some parts of it may be rather in-depth. If you are listening to this as a podcast, you can also head over to the YouTube channel to watch the full video in action. So this is the much-anticipated discussion between Mark Laslett and Adam Meekins, two giants in the physiotherapy world who need almost no introduction. However, for those who still don't know them, Mark Laslett is a physiotherapist from New Zealand who has been in practice for over 50 years. He's a well-published author and has written and taught extensively on the topics of lower back pain. Adam Meekins is a physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, coach based here in the UK. He's also a lecturer and a published author who's well known for standing up to nonsense and challenging the dogma and unsupported claims within the healthcare industry. This discussion came about following Adam's recent lower back pain episode where he documented his own recovery and self-management. His approach included deciding to self-manage, returning to deadlifting, and incorporating spinal flexion movements as part of his early rehab. This was questioned by some others in the industry, quite publicly, including Mark, for being different to what they would have done and different from what some others might see as their usual management for lower back and radicular pain. This was discussed on social media frequently until it was decided that an open discussion would be far more productive than trying to cram everything into 160 characters. So we invited both Mark and Adam to join us to discuss Adam's injury, the evidence surrounding lower back pain management, spinal flexion, deadlifts, and much more in what was a charged and rather spicy, but also very enjoyable and informative discussion. Despite this being heated at times, you will realize that throughout this, they actually agree on more than you may have expected. So, if you don't already, please do give our podcast a subscribe or share an episode with your colleagues or patients. It really does mean the world to us. And if you like what we do, consider applying to be listed on our practitioner network at thebackpainpodcast.com. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Rob, who's going to host this discussion, and you can grab some popcorn, sit back and enjoy. So let's kick it off. Let me give you both a couple seconds to briefly introduce yourself, and then we'll jump straight in. Well, I was going to say seniority should go first, so I I reckon uh, Dr. Laslett should go first and introduce himself. I'll go second. Oh, um, 
Uh, sorry, okay, I'm a physiotherapist. I practice as a um, specialist. Um, I think in New Zealand we have one of the few situations where the licensing authority actually rec recognises specialist physiotherapists in the same way as they do medical doctors. So I'm, I'm one of one of those and in New Zealand and my specialty is musculoskeletal. Obviously I have an interest in back pain. Um, I've been a clinician all my life. I haven't, I'm not a, um, I've been involved in academia, but I'm not really an academic. I'm, I'm a clinician and, um, but I did a PhD, which um, to basically look at my particular interest, which was uh, candid clinical assessment um, that we do actually predict reference standards. So there's, can we find out can we predict which structure is the source of pain? That was my interest, and that's what my PhD was about that. And much of my publications have been about that too. So, um, and it remains there remains an interest to me. Um, and it's and again, it's been it sounds very pathoanatomic, but it's broader than that. But um, but yeah, uh, that's been my primary interest, and I'm now uh, semi-retired in the sense that I'm only in the clinic one or two days a week. Um, I do about two days of work, but I do all my reporting from home, from this office here. So, but um, but I'm in the clinic seeing patients, and I still see complex patients only. Really, don't see any simple stuff anymore. But um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much me. Brilliant. And and Adam, tell us about yourself. So my name is Adam, and uh, I'm a physiotherapist, and uh, that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, haven't always been a physio, so my first degree was in sports science. So I did a couple of years as a as a sports scientist, a strength and conditioning coach before I went into physiotherapy. But I've been a physio now for 21 years. Uh, just like Mark, I'm a clinician first and foremost, not a, a researcher, although I have dabbled a little bit in a couple of clinical trials, but soon, re soon realized that wasn't the world for me. And so I uh, have stuck on the clinical coalface, uh, but I've also branched off into education now. So I do some teaching myself uh, where I specialize in the upper limb, so I focus on shoulder problems mainly, um, work bo working both in the NHS and private practice. And uh, I also run an educational company called The Better Clinician Project with my colleague and good friend, Ben Cormack. So that's me in a nutshell. Brilliant. So obviously this came about initially because of Adam's own back pain injury. You know, you, you hurt your back doing a deadlift. So why don't we jump into, tell us a little bit about the injury, how that came about, kind of your symptoms, and then we can kind of jump out from there, depending on, on, on how that goes. Sure. Well, um, so I was doing some deadlifts on the 7th of August. So it's nearly three months ago to date that it, the incident happened. And I was doing my ut routine, usual Friday uh, session, uh, where I was working up to my maximum weight deadlifts, which was 180 kilograms. I've been working through a 16-week block to build myself up there after just coming out of lockdown that we had uh, suffered in uh, the UK. So we didn't have access to gyms for four months before that. So I was using the next four months to build back up. And this was my last week of this 16-week training program before I was going to take a deload week and a rest and recovery week. And during these repetitions of 180 kilograms, uh, the second repetition of my three reps that I had planned, something went in my back is the way I can describe it. So I had a searing pain on the left-hand side, dropped me to the floor like a sack of spuds, lots of yelping out, screaming, shouting, effing and blinding, uh, you know, cold sweats, trying to work out what's going on. Um, Initial thoughts were rushing through my head as they tend to, you know, worst case scenarios, etc. 
But after five minutes, pulled myself together, sort of managed to put the weights away, went and sort of played around with some movements and then uh, started to document my process of my journey through this back injury. So because I caught it, because I filmed it actually doing it because I was filming my deadlifts, I thought I could use this as a little case series on social media and do regular updates, just sort of explaining how things were going day by day, week by week. Uh, and that's pretty much where, as I say, it kicked off a lot of comments, lots of debates, lots of discussions and lots of disagreements as well, which is what I think we may be uh, discussing a little bit here today. Well, that's why why this came about because of various disagreements on uh, on social media. Was that your first time having a back pain episode like this? Uh, yes, so it's the first serious episode of back pain. So I've been deadlifting on and off pretty much on a weekly basis, I'd say, for thirty years. So uh, in my previous life, as a, as a an ex soldier and doing um, strength and conditioning, I've constantly been training. So nearly at fifty years of age now. I've probably been doing deadlifts from the age of 16, 17 years upwards, but this is my first real serious episode of back pain. I've had the odd occasional niggles and twinges, you know, like we all do, but nothing, nothing like this before. Okay. And then how did that progress over the, over the, the kind of the, the three months to now? Obviously it was pretty severe. Anyone who's seen the videos will know it was, you know, incredibly painful for that first week, two weeks, three weeks. How did that progress? Um, so initially, um, the first sort of 24, 48 hours, I was quite hopeful because I thought I'd dodged a bullet because although I had this initial searing pain initially, um, I, I, I had some very mechanical symptoms. I couldn't extend, I couldn't stand up straight, but my pain wasn't that severe. It was uncomfortable, but it wasn't that severe. But after about 48 hours, definitely 72 hours, the pain kicked in with a vengeance. I started to get referred pain going down into my groin and the front of my left leg. Uh, and then I started to notice I was also getting sensory deficits as well as motor weakness in my left leg as well. So I noticed my quadriceps strength started to reduce. And I noticed say, I couldn't feel or I had altered sensation in my left knee down the medial border of my left shin as well. And that was probably, I noticed that probably around seven, eight days, maybe nine days afterwards as well. But the pain progressively got worse through that time as well. So the ridiculous pain just increased and increased and increased. Lots of sleep disturbance, unable to sleep at all, um, struggling to function, you know, really short bursts of activity was all I could tolerate, few steps here and there. Uh, painkillers weren't doing much. It weren't really getting on top of it. Even the neurogenic painkillers that I went to see my doctor for didn't really make much difference on it. Uh, so that was the worst. And I'd say that probably lasted 20 odd days or so, maybe. Uh, so nearly three weeks. But then things started to turn a corner, started to feel better, started to recover, started to return back to activity, started to return back to training. Uh, and I actually did some deadlifts, experimenting with some deadlifts around three weeks afterwards as well. So I think day 21 was the first session I went back just to explore because I started to feel OK. I just thought I'd do some lightish deadlifts. Uh, and that all felt fine. Uh, and then just progressively built it from there, just, you know, and, and, and again, over time, just felt myself improving week by week. And at three months now, I'd say I'm back 100 percent, uh, three months now, sorry, 100 percent. No issues, no pain anymore. Uh, quadriceps strength has come back and I haven't got the sensory deficit in my leg either. Brilliant. So I know we're going to jump into this, the specifics of kind of how you how you manage that yourself. But I know that a question from Mark as well, which he, he kind of sent to us was, 
you were pretty sure that you hadn't done anything structurally wrong at the time. I know you just kind of use the words mechanical. How can you be so certain at the time that it wasn't anything structurally wrong? Is that something you can assess yourself? Um, I, I don't think I said I didn't think it was structural. I just said I was uncertain of the structure that I'd hurt. So, you know, our ability to assess and diagnose specific structures is challenging. Um, I had I had suspicions, as I said, worst case scenarios and everything were running through my head based on the mechanical nature of my injury and the clear mechanism of my injury, the signs and symptoms that I had. My probability was that it was a disc injury, but I couldn't be 100% certain like nobody can. So I was not going to go on social media and start saying I've definitely had a disc injury because I had no worrying features or sinister s symptoms that were going to lead me to think that I needed to go and have any further tests and investigations. So I wasn't worried about getting imaging. I didn't think it was necessary or needed uh, to get the confirmation that I had most likely a lumbar disc herniation. But, you know, so I would say that I, uh, my, my point was is that I wasn't, saying it wasn't structural. I just couldn't be sure exactly what structure. It could have been a muscle, could have been a ligament as well. Unlikely, but they were on the probable list of diagnoses. So if you had to speculate at the time, would you have put more weight on it being a disc injury than another type of injury? So immediately after I dropped the weight and I was on the floor crying out, my brain rushed to, you've just herniated a disc and you've got nucleus propulsus splattered all over your spinal canal. So that was pretty much what was going on in my mind. Yeah, so, and, and so that then turns it quite then over to Mark. Mark, if based on what you've heard from Adam and what you saw on on, on social media, would you would you speculate as to the the cause of the injury or to the the reason for his pain? Um, there are a couple of things that I would um, um, question. I would, uh, for example, I I think it was um, it was day ten before you. Uh, I think it was day ten before you started to get symptoms down the leg. He right. had groin pain at early point, but uh, my my recollection, I, I mean, I've got I've kept the videos, and I created a collage of them, which I sent you last night, um, and it was actually day I think it was day ten I think before you got um, leg pain. Is that all right, Adam? No, I was having groin and anterior thigh pain from around day two, day three. It it, it spread a lot further distally. Uh, around day 10, and then it's when I started to notice the sensory deficits as well, yeah. Well, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my reading of the, um, the clips that you posted was that, that you were, were in severe acute pain um, for the first four or five days, and then it actually improved I had twenty. I had a twenty-four hour window, yeah, of improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a point. There was a point where we thought, "Oh shit, I'm coming right," you know, and and right, yeah. And then then you started to get the weakness in the leg and stuff like that, right? Yep. Mm. That's that's my recollection of it anyway. And, and as I re as I uh, looked at the posts and I and I, I followed it, and um and so um and that to me the picture of that particular. The, the the injury through the acute phase, the easing off, and then the development of radicular syndrome later, that is an extremely common um, picture, a pattern. Excuse me, pattern. Which um, which I mean, the vast majority of people who wind up in clinics presenting with a neurologic deficit and, and dominant leg pain and and uh, and all the rest of it, go through a period 
which is quite variable, for, uh, where they have only back pain. And so um, the uh, when the patient has pain which is dominant in the back, be it in the middle or to the side, then um, it is the probability of that being discogenic is extremely high. Um, you know, that's 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 just simple. That's simple um, probabilities. Um, there, obviously, that probability, your estimate of that, increases and decreases according to other factors. Uh, for example, if you were um, seventy years of age, the probability of being discogenic is less, and it might be more likely to be um, facetogenic. Um, if you were a female who's, um, you know, only six months ago had um, had a had a baby, then the probability of that being sacroiliac is probably higher. So you you manipulate the probability simply on the basis of other factors, which. Um, and um, given your profile, from what I know of it, um, you know, it, your discogenic pain seemed to me to be very, very obvious right from the start. And the fact that you had a lateral shift and obstruction to extension, obstruction to correction of that shift on the second day, the next day after the injury, basically made that very clear to me. I mean, it was, it was, I, I don't think that anybody would seriously argue it could be anything else. But I, th I think what Adam was saying was that he, he never said it wasn't a disc. He was just saying that he can't be certain it's a disc. And, you know, no, would the evidence agree that it wasn't a disc? But he, but, he but he studiously avoided actually saying what it might be. But you, yeah. but you can't, you, but the, again, that would only be hypothetical because, you know, you know as well as I do that the, you, you can't be certain at that stage. That it, that it is a disc. What do you mean by certain? So I mean, I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omniscient. I'm not God. I don't don't even pretend to to to, to approach that sort of uh, that sort of level of understanding. But the truth is, is that there is a point at which you can say the probability is so high that 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 it might as well be a default diagnosis. Adam. Yeah, and I did when the probability was so high that I had unlikely any other differential diagnosis. Um, but in those first few days, possibly the first week, I wasn't prepared to put out there on social media to my large platform a diagnosis that I probably wouldn't label a patient with at that particular time if I was to assess them based on their signs and symptoms. That's fair enough. I mean, I, I don't actually have a problem with that. It's just that, just that, 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 I, that, that it's, it just so happens that you went on to have um, symptoms that demonstrated that, that my speculation at the early stages is probably correct. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I said, that, that's fine. And I'm quite happy to say that your, your diagnosis can change as you receive more information as the patient's um, journey yeah. and, and symptoms change. And that's exactly what happened with mine. I most certainly don't ever always get it right. <laughs> no. Everyone adapts. So that, that, that's, where, that's, that's where I say, you know, at the initial stage is suspicion was high, but I wasn't prepared to say this is a definite diagnosis. It was only when things in turn changed, that's when my probability shifted. So obviously, Adam, you you lent heavily on, on or solely on self-management. You know, obviously, as a physiotherapist yourself, you understand back pain obviously better than the layperson. You know, why did you choose a self-management approach? Was that based on guidelines? Was it just based on your own experience with back pain? You know, you chose deliberately not to go and get it looked at. I know you, you said you just mentioned you went to see your your, your doctor or GP or someone. Um, was that just on your own experience you decided to do that? Yeah, pretty much. So, again, you know, based on 21 years of clinical experience, uh, a, a, far, a, a fair amount of reading around back pain, 
uh, on its prognosis, on its assessment, on its management. I felt I was well equipped to be able to self-assess, self-diagnose and self-manage my my situation. Yeah. So, Mark, do you agree that that was the right decision at the time? If this was you or, you know, a physiotherapist running you up in the same position, would you have recommended? I've, I've, I've had what he's had twice. I've had what he's had twice. Actually, almost at the same age. I was 51 and 53 uh, when, when that happened to me. That was, that was 20 years ago. But um, uh, And I was actually teaching in Finland when I had it the first time. Uh, and I was teaching uh, a bunch of doctors, chiropractors, and uh, what they call um, a, an osteopath slash chiropractic profession in, in, in Scandinavia, uh, which I'm trying to figure out. Napropaths, yeah. Um, um, they have, a, they have a, a biennial meeting um, in northern Finland every two years. And they have a meeting, and, um, and I was the speaker, and I was talking about shoulder pain and back pain. And, um, and on the last day, I blew my back. I mean, I've just been over to pick up a sock from underneath my bed after going cross-country skiing the previous day, which I've never done in my life before. And I was completely knackered. And, uh, but I blew my back, and, um, and I somehow managed to walk across 50 metres of icy car park to go and complete my lecture day, that day. And, um, and, and I, uh, I had to self-manage it. I was on the other side of the planet. Uh, fortunately, the, um, my uh, the, my sponsor was actually a pain doctor, and he gave me some of these new Celebrex, or they were Celebrex, Celoxib. Uh, so, 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 what is it? Um, anyway, that that second Cox two inhibitor, and that really did help. But um, but you know, within days, I was fine. But the, the bottom line is, is that I've actually, and then, then two years ago, I was back in Finland, and I did it again. <laughs> In Finland, so self-management, I, I totally get. Um, you know, the question the question is, is how do you do that? And and uh, are there times when um, when self-management can be augmented? And um, in my opinion, one of your points online was why didn't Adam, you know, go, go down the line of getting some assessment or or seeing another physiotherapist or, or something well, no, like that. no, no, no. There's nobody better. There's nobody better than him to actually assess that himself. Although being a patient is not the same as being a therapist. You know, um, uh, the, the, the truth is, is that he uh, he had as good an idea about what's going on as anybody. Um, you know, going to see his GP that's that that is for that that's just for the drugs. Right. Let's be frank about that. The point is, the GP has nothing to offer that we that we that we can't do for ourselves, and in fact, neither can the surgeon actually, except for when it's obviously, frankly, herniated. Um, now, this and and it's not getting better, by the way. You know, they often get better by themselves, as we all know. So the reality is, is that I had no problems whatever with himself managing. I have issues with how he did that, but the fact of management is not a problem at all. No, that's fine. So that moves on then nicely to, to how Adam managed his own back pain. So Adam, what was your, did you have a strategy or were you just avoiding pain? Did you decide to try and poke into pain? How did you manage it initially? And then how did that progress? And then we'll see if Mark would have done it differently. Yeah, well, the simple answer is here, and I know Mark will probably disagree with this, but um, I didn't have any particular strategy. Um, so I was not following any protocol. I was not following any particular method of exercise or movements, I was playing around and exploring all of the various different options. Uh, and again, the reason I do that is because I know that no two episodes of back pain are the same. I know there's a very much individual presentation and it is very much dependent on the individual signs and symptoms as to what I would probably recommend. So that's what I was playing around with. I was exploring what my 
my pain provocations were, uh, what were my easing positions. Uh, and they did fluctuate a little bit. They moved around a bit, but not excessively. I had a very much preferred position and movement to go into. So flexion was definitely the most comfortable position and extensions were the most uncomfortable. So I tried a little bit of pushing into pain. I tried a little bit of avoiding pain. I tried a little bit of extensions. I tried a little bit of flexions. I tried a little bit of distractions. I tried some compressions, tried some rotations. So as I say, there wasn't any distinct pattern or strategy that I was following, particularly in those first few weeks, those real painful stages. It was trial and error, experimentation, uh, and seeing what the reactions were after I did a bit of this, after a bit of that. So flexion was the easing position. So going forwards, took the pain away completely. Did it increase any ridiculous symptoms or increase any back pain at all? No, I didn't take away the pain completely, but it was the comfortablest position. Um, and 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 it and it reduced the pain in the groin and the front of the thigh significantly. Um, it, trying to stand up straight for the first five seven days was difficult, and to say any movement past upright erect was nigh on agony. So trying to go into extension was yeah not happening. So did you actively avoid pushing into, into pain? Because I know that, you know, something that came up online and that Mark said was that you, you pushed into some positions that hurt, like dead hanging and doing pull-ups and things, but avoided extension and lateral flexion. No, nope. Was so, there a reason behind that or did you not avoid them? No, so some days I, I pushed into extension, some days I did distraction, some days I had a day off where I thought, bugger this, it hurts too much, I'm going to have a day where I'm not going to provoke things. So it was very much based on how I was feeling and, uh, again, based on the reactions that the movements and the things that I were doing were having. Yeah. And is that the same advice you would you would do with a patient? So you did kind of exactly what you did for yourself? Everything that I did myself is how I would manage somebody that I see with the same signs and symptoms. It's about, again, just asking them to find strategies that work for them based on their current situation at that particular time and moment in time. So there are some patients that will probably need to push through some pain barriers, but in those first acute stages, that's very unlikely. I don't think there's any need to aggravate, irritate things when things just sometimes need some time to calm down and recover and, and just settle down. Other times, you know, there are people that do need to be a little bit more aggressive and push into pain and they don't need that sort of avoidance strategy. Uh, and again, trying to decide who does that, when does that, it, it's, the, it's the holy grail of physiotherapy. It is the holy grail of, of treatment. And again, I know people claim that they know exactly who needs to do what and exactly when, but in my experience, it, it just doesn't go that easily. There's lots of uncertainty around it. I have, again, after a thorough, detailed history taking and an assessment, you have a, an idea, you have a right, okay, I think this is probably the best way to try it first. Let's see if we push them into pain and see if that starts to violate some expectations or that starts to push them through something that's a little bit stuck or stiff and see if that improves things. Uh, other times it's like, no, that person just needs to let stuff calm down. They need to stop sensitizing, irritating things and let's avoid it for a bit. Okay, so Mark then, in terms of that approach, would you have done a similar approach yourself what would your approach been if, if adam was one of your patients in front of you how would you have managed it differently 
Oh, and I would have, I would have corrected the shift straight away and restored its extension. Mark, I, I couldn't go into extension. If you tried to restore my extension, mate, I, I would have dropped you like a sack of spuds, my friend, because there was absolutely no way I was going to go into any bloody extension. I know that. I know. And, and that's, not me, that's not me avoiding pain. That's not me being soft or, or whatever. It, no, it's just no, a matter I'm of the fact that there was absolutely, in those first five, seven, nine days, no way I was going to be able to do repeated extensions in line or sustained extensions. And even doing the lateral glides were provocative. And all that did was just, it just stirred things Adam, up. Adam, I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for me. What doesn't work for you? I mean, the fact that I, I saw on the video you doing your side glides and you hit you hit the obstruction and you backed right yeah, out of it. Because it was bloody you, painful you, no, and stirred it up. Let, I, I know it's painful. Just listen for a second. Just for one second, listen. If you had done lateral shift corrections and have been doing it, as a method of treatment, if you have been doing it, you would know that, just listen, all right? You would know that as soon as I put my hands on there, it's completely different from doing it against a wall, completely different. When I apply the pressure, some people go, ow, and if I just gently hold it, it fades. And then as I pull a little harder, it fades further. And pull up a little harder, it fades further. Some people, as soon as I put my hands on, they go, that feels better. They can't do it against the wall, just like you couldn't. But you, but I, And I made that suggestion, and you bounced me right away. Why that silly McKenzie shit? The point is, is that I've been doing this since the 1970s, many times a week, with many, many patients, and I know very rapidly, within a day, whether it's going to work or not. And when it works, it works fast. And I'm sorry, you know, if you, you you don't have that experience, and if you don't have that experience, I'm sorry. That's I, what else can I say? Mate, your appeals to, your appeals to antiquity and authority, mate. I'm going to fly it here. It's not antiquity. It's today. It, it, it's today. It, it, you can't you can't throw around you know claims that you've been doing it for 20 years, therefore it must work because I've been doing it for longer than that, longer than you've been in practice, Mark. Regardless of that, it's the case the fact that the evidence shows that it doesn't have any superiority. Bullshit, the evidence does not it show doesn't. that. that show, show me a trial that does says not that McKinsey has a superior um, approach and method for treating back pain. Show me a trial that what you did is superior. No, exactly, because there, there isn't one. That's my point. There isn't any treatment no, or method that's more superior than the other one. Okay, okay. So, Mark, if, if, if you felt that the, the, the shift had been corrected and extension had been restored, do you, do you think that that would have reduced the chance of it becoming ridiculous at a later date? Because I know obviously it was a later date in your, in your experience. Absolutely. Um, okay, here's the difference. Is there evidence to prove that that's the case? No, there is not. No argument about that. None whatsoever. Is there, uh, are, you, are you saying that, uh, that on occasions over the last 35 years that I've been doing this, on occasions... People have got gone on to get ridiculous symptoms regardless of what I do. All right. That absolutely happens. But the reality is, is that the vast majority of cases, if I manage to correct that shift and restore the extension, they do not go on to get radiculopathy. 
the vast majority of cases. Do I have evidence? Have I done a trial to do that? No, I never have. You know why? Because my interest has been diagnostics, not in outcomes. All right. Have other people done that? Yes, they've done it with non-specific low back pain, not acute serious people who only have shifts. There's never been a study, so there's just no evidence. No evidence is not proof of inefficiency. Mark, can I ask what your hypothesis is then when you do this and somebody doesn't develop into getting ridiculous? What's your hypothesis of mechanism of effect then? Well, I have a whole course on that. But I mean, the truth is, is that, and, then, and, and actually telling you very briefly what takes probably about 20 hours to actually teach um, is almost impossible. But the reality is, is that as far as we know, and it's not, it's not conclusive by any means. As far as we know, the best explanation for those obstructions to extension and side gliding, which you, which you, you experienced, um, those there are probably as a, a, a consequence of internal dynamics of the, of the intervertebral disc, as far as we know. That's the best explanation we have. Okay, I, I accept that. But could there also be an alternative hypothesis that somebody who doesn't go on to get radiculopathy in those presentations didn't have a disc problem to begin with? No. There's no, there's no, I, I don't accept that. I'll tell you why. Is that as far as we know, there has never been any information that has sh shown that a person with a lateral shift has any other pathology. So someone with a lateral shift always has a disc pathology? There is, there, is, there, is plenty, there is plenty of evidence that suggests that people who do have that almost probably do have disc, discopathy of some sort. So you don't think that there could be any other alternative hypothesis for somebody who has got a... Oh, there are. There are, yeah. there are alternative hypotheses which I have looked at in detail over the last 30 years, yes. One, one is muscle spasm, muscle spasm, for example. Thank you. That's exact, that was exactly what I was trying to get at. So there could be another reason why somebody has a mechanical restriction in a certain direction rather than just having a disc pathology. Well, let's explore the, the muscle spasm one just briefly. I mean, we don't, let's not get into a lecture here, but I mean, let's just explore that very briefly. If you had muscles, I mean, have you, have you, you, know, you know the muscle spasm hurts, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. You, know, you get cramp. It, it's painful. I get cramp in my calves, you know, and it wakes me up in the middle of the night. So, you know, it's, it's a really painful thing, and it never hurts anywhere else but in the muscle that's in cramp, right? Am, am, am I, are we on the same page here? Yeah, roughly, yeah. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, so in other words, if the muscle that was in spasm that causes the shift, would have to be, the pain would have to be on the same side of the body as the shift. So when your trunk is shifted to the left, it would have to be a left-sided muscle that's doing it. Is that not unreasonable? It's a potential hypothesis, Mark, yeah. No, 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 but we're, we're talking about the hypothesis that muscle spasm is the reason for the shift. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if it was the reason for the shift, then the pain would have to be on that side. Does pain what side always... was your pain on? What side was your pain on? It was on my left-hand side. What side, which way was your trunk shifted? Uh, for the first couple of days, I was shifted over to the right. Wrong side. Well, yeah, but again, that doesn't, again, prove that there was a – as I said, my, my most no, likely hypothesis – what it disproves is the, disproves the muscle spasm theory. No, I, I agree. But in my case, I would probably say and I agree with you that there was most likely a disc injury. But I'm just saying there are going to be presentations sometimes that they, they may not be disc herniations. 
there, there is that there is that possibility that somebody with a mechanical restriction and a limitation like mine may not have a disc problem. And therefore your corrections and your McKenzie treatments may show and look like they work when they, and, and the mechanism is theory to, you know, centralize and reduce the disc herniation, but there may have not been a disc herniation there in the first place. That's all no, I'm trying no, to No, it wasn't, really, it wasn't, it was not herniated to start with. Absolutely not. It was, it was, it was internal disc mechanics that hadn't herniated. Herniated has gone outside there. So let's, but let's go back. Okay. If you had a person comes in and they're in kyphosis, all right, and they're locked in there, they cannot, they can't stand straight. I see that on a regular basis. Well, I did. I don't see many of those now, but in my, my former life, when I was doing primary care, I would see one of the, one or two of these every, every couple of weeks, you know, where they're stuck in flexion. And, um, you know, and you ask yourself the question, which muscles are in spasm to do that? The abdominals? The psoas muscles? How would that work? I mean, well, it makes no bloody sense at all. The muscle spasm thing's dead. You know, it's very simple. It's a simple research project to sort that out. You know, sometimes, again, in presentations with no clear mechanisms of injury, people can present with so-called very looking mechanical symptoms that could be, you know, related to tissues and specific things, but they could also not. And we have to, we have to accept that. We have to recognize that the evidence says that. We have to know that pain, location, pain, Ags and eases are not always 100% reliable in giving us a, our accuracy to diagnose a particular structure. I never claimed 100% reliability either. Just let's be straight. I, don't, I, hate, I hate the always and the nevers. Um, but let's, let's go back to the other. Let's get back to the other possible theory that people have put forward, that the, display, the, 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 the displacement of the disc, all right, either side of the nerve root determines whether you shift towards the pain or away from the side of the pain. That's a dead duck too. And, and I mean, I've been involved in research that looked at that and we found no relationship whatsoever. So that's another, that's another story. So, um, but I have looked at all the theories and there's only one that continues to stand up. That's why, that's why I, I teach it. It's, I mean, so in, in looking at you, I would say you had discogenic pain from day one. You tore the annulus and it started to displace internally and that's it. Well, I'm glad you're that certain. Well, I think well, also Adam never said he didn't. I think that's the thing. He, you know, that was one of the hypotheses of his injury was that, that it could be this. But it, as he said at the beginning, it wasn't that could have been an option. But, it, you know, he wouldn't have put all of his all of his trust that that was the only cause of his of his injury, I guess, which is what he would come back to say. No, that. If, you, if you want if you, if you want omnipotence and omniscience, fine. But don't, don't expect that from me. I won't give you no, that. No, I don't think any, any clinician will ever give you that. That, that would be a that would be. So let's move on to the, the, the flexion part of it, because obviously that was a big part of the took the pain, you know, or was the easier position. And I know that Mark, mm. part of the discussion was, you know, avoiding this spinal flexion. It took the symptoms or reduced or made it more comfortable for Adam at the time. Mark, did you say that at the time that he should have avoided that position? And that was what potentially brought on more ridiculous pain? Or, you know, if he was one of your patients, would you have said not go into flexion? Yes, I would have actually. Yes, I would, I would have re recovered his extension after correcting his shift, and I would have got him to avoid flexion for several days, and then I would have reintroduced flexion possibly by a week later. Adam, 
I find that amazing. I find that absolutely astounding that a healthcare professional would tell somebody to not do something that makes them feel comfortable when they're in a lot of acute, when they're in a lot of you wouldn't you 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 I've I've got I've actually documented where you've said I have avoided extension. So why do you avoid extension when flexion was a thing that it came on doing? Because it was bloody <laughs> painful. Because <laughs> it fucking hurt you like a son of a bitch. You said it hurt like a mother. You said extension. that. Why did you choose that? Pain is a fucking modifier. Pain is a behaviour changer, Mark. That's why I didn't go into extension. Because I injured my fucking back. I had most likely had a disc herniation and it, and it hurt like a mother yeah, to go into extension. That's why I didn't go into extension. So are you saying that the only position that I felt comfortable in is I should have avoided it? Because, again, I, I not only was, you weren't the only person who to told me that. I had other people saying I needed no, six weeks of avoiding inflation. Yeah, the first right. question I've got is well, how do I sit on the <laughs> fucking toilet and tie up my shoes? That's my first question. How am I going to do my own shoes up and how am I going to sit in the toilet if I can't go into spinal flexion for a week or six so, weeks? And why do I need to avoid a comfortable position? What potential harm could come from well, that? Well, um, you know, as it turns out, you've actually um, gotten better um, very well, of which I'm very pleased for you. Um, you've done extremely well um, in spite of... Um, no, despite no, doing no, everything no. wrong, People, allegedly. sometimes get better in spite of what we do, not because of them. I think that's important to realise. And isn't that because the body has a potential to heal itself? That's normal, exactly. Or maybe things that we think are going on are perhaps not going well, on. That's true. I mean, you know, but the, the point is, you've got to work on some sort of hypothesis anyway. But the, the reality is, is that, I mean, you, your hypothesis was, is that we, can't, we don't know anything, so therefore we should just do what feels good. Is that not right? No, it wasn't. That, that wasn't my hypothesis at all, Mark. I don't know why you keep throwing this straw man at me. That's straw man. This is not my hypothesis that I don't know what was going on. I had, I had differential diagnoses, oh. and they were changing in the very acute stages, mm -hmm. and it became more and more certain as time went on, as my signs and symptoms evolved, as it should do, as a good clinician recognises okay. and works with people with pain. I don't make firm decisions immediately straight away. And you don't need, and you, what's more, you don't even need to have a diagnosis to treat that, by the way. And I, and I, and that, that's very important to me to make very, very clear, is that I did not have to know that you had discogenic pain in order to treat it by correcting the shift and restoring your extension. I didn't have to know that. I believe we do know that, but it's not necessary to know that. I think that's. Yeah, I think we all. Oh, I think we'd all, all agree to that. That the, the labelling of MSK injuries isn't necessary in order to get better. Well, so it is. A, it is. Once know. it becomes chronic, we need to know a little bit more. But the, the, but in the acute phase, we don't need to do that. But the, um, the, the this idea that that I'm going to get you to avoid flexion for the next six six weeks is 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 nonsense. I, there's no way in the world I suggested that at any time. All right. Why six days? Why should I avoid it for six days then, not six oh, weeks? Oh well, it's just pure experience, really. I'll tell you why. Now you can say that. Oh, that's not published. Actually, it is. But that's, we won't go into that. The, the reality is, is that yeah. that we find that once we have restored extension and corrected the shift, if you don't avoid deflection, the shift comes back. The pain comes back. So if you avoid it for a period of days, and you can, by the way, all right, then you can reintroduce flexion without the shift and the pain recurring 
usually within about a week later. All right. So I was I, I, I was unable to correct my shift and I was unable to go into extension. So I wasn't able to do these prerequisites that you stipulated. So should I still avoid flexion? No, actually, that, that is quite correct. If you are absolutely unable to get into extension and, for example, if I was there correcting your shift and restoring extension and I was still unable to do that, I wouldn't have forced you to avoid flexion. No. And I was telling you to bugger off, yeah. Yeah, which I would have been because you would well, not have been able to correct my extension or my true. lateral shift. I, I, I know what you're saying. Maybe you would have given it a try, but I, I just probably wouldn't have let you because I knew how it felt when I was trying to do it. Anybody who came on, well, and you tried to, wouldn't have let me anyway, not, not because of the pain. I would think. No, anybody who came to try and force it, it just. I, I tried to force it myself. If anybody else tried to do it, it, it just. I knew it you wouldn't have worked. No, you can't when you're like that. It wouldn't have worked. You can't. You can't. You can't do it yourself. Adam, it's not possible. Sometimes I have seen it on occasions. I mean, the first time I saw a person correct, self-correct a major lateral shift was actually in Minneapolis in 1982. And I was actually assisting McKenzie and he had a patient up there, just massive shift. He's a, the guy was like six foot six and weighed about 250 pounds. He was massive. But McKenzie couldn't get his arms around him. So he says, you're so big, I can't do this. You've got to do it yourself. And that guy in front of 100 people sweated himself over there with his pain screaming at him and he did it all by himself. And I, McKenzie and I were just sitting there going, holy shit, because it's really, really hard to do. This guy was an absolute lumberjack. And, you know, and he was as tough as boots and he just, we powered his way through that and we were stunned. It is, it is really difficult. I'm not, I'm not absolutely not questioning the level of pain that you, that you were in. And I'm not at all. I've been there. I've done it. I felt it. I know exactly what it feels like. So, and I've seen but it. Did I need to correct my shift? That's my, ne my next question. Sorry to, to butt in, but is my next, what did I need? Because as you said, I recovered very well. You should have. No, and, 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 and this is actually fine, you know, and, and, and it happens there. It happens spontaneously with a significant portion of people. I'm, so I didn't need I didn't need to correct my shift. No, you did not. But it does accelerate process if you managed to. So how do you identify those who do and who those who don't? Well, it's it, it's trial and error. You you talked about trial and error. Well, that's what you did. Well, I I will attempt that at, on day one with most people. Now and and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and they have to take the slow route, route like you took. So did Adam take the slow route? You thought my route. Oh, sorry, you thought my route was slow. Reasonably, yes. So going from onset of injury, disabling back pain, returning back to deadlifting within 21 days of bodyweight deadlifting, not missing a day of work, um, what else? And, and fully recovered within under three months. Are you telling me that's a slow recovery for a disc herniation with ridiculous? No, that's fairly average. That's fairly average in primary fairly care. Which research papers are you looking at the natural history of disc um, herniations and radiculopathy, Mark, because that's not the timelines that I know. Well, actually, the, I, 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 you, you, you caught me on the hop here, but there is evidence, I'm sure, that, I, that I'm aware of, and I can actually give you that later on because I, I, I didn't come with my list of references already ready at hand. But the truth is, is that there is an enormous range of patients um, that who, who go through, who can go on and prolapse their disc and be better in 10 days through to people who never get better. The range is enormous. Yeah, so what, what, what would you say is, is the average mean duration for disc herniation, radiculopathy, and complete recovery? Complete recovery. 
Um, uh, no, I have a rule of thumb, which probably matches the evidence fairly well, that between three and six months, um, 75% appear to be about, are better. So, I agree with you. That's exactly what the evidence says. It's exactly what the 75% better three to six yeah. months. I'm 100% better in under three months, and you think my yeah, progress so you're on is... Yeah, you're on the other side of the slope. You've done really well. You, yeah, but you just said my progress was slow. So how can no, I... No, 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 don't, don't take me out of You just said my progress was slow, and it could have been sorry. faster had I had McKenzie treatment. No, no, listen, listen. I did not say that your radiculopathy recover was, was slow. I did not say that. I said that your acute pain management was slow. What's the difference? You took 10 days. You took 10 days. Then you went on to get radiculopathy. I'm saying that if we had managed to correct your shift to restore your extension and done the, um, the, the initial thing in a different way, you might have got over the acute pain a lot quicker. And that's been but my Mark, experience. If, if he had correct, corrected the extension... How would that? Uh, but flexion was still the aggravation. Well, no, you, you can't. You, you know, you, you can't. You can't get your extension back unless you correct the shift. The, the well, two go corrected, together, hand if, in hand. If and you corrected the shift and the extension, if flexion was the trigger and you feel aggravated as radiculopathy, he still would have been flexing whether he had extension or not, would he not? Oh no! But the, by then the pain you start you start the flexion at a point where and you test for that you actually test that before you start adding flexion you test to see if it is safe to do so and if it is uh, if you can do repeated unloaded flexion then you add that to the um, uh, so your program then you start your strengthening right away just as Dad, just as Adam has done you know and 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 I'm not and I'm not here to tell you that I would have a better way of progressing a person beyond the acute pain management. Better than what Adam's done. Adam's done, done a fine job. But was was flexion not you know, safe if he could do it pain free? He didn't do it pain free. Oh, he didn't do it pain free. Oh, I thought flexion was a pain free movement to do, or it wasn't provocative. It was not pain of free. No, he did not say that. Am I correct, Adam? It reduced my symptoms significantly, and it didn't hurt to go into flexion. Yeah. And you know, and we, and we have it. We do. There's a reasonable explanation for that too, because you're opening up the posterior compartment, so you're not compressing it, so it doesn't hurt. Yeah. And again, but so that that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It's very common. So why why so why why would you disagree with him using flexion as a movement or a stretch in the in that early in that early window when it wasn't provocative? Well, it seems to me that he actually injured himself by doing repeated loaded flexion. So here we go. So you think that I made my in so I've, I, this is another accusation that I had numerous times again. Not just well, no, don't, don't call it an no, accusation. No, no. It was an observation. It, 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 it's no, it's an accusation. It's, I'm not accusing I, you of anything here. I'm not saying you, Mark. I'm saying there's been a number of accusations okay. sent to me that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm reckless. I'm dangerous because I was using flexion-based movements with a disc herniation. And and again, the the the, the accusations are is that by me demonstrating this and showing this, this is putting the public at harm and it's going to do them further risk. And I'm like, why is that the case? Why is the reason that I am going into flexion making things more harmful, more dangerous, or putting things at risk? You're asking me? I didn't make those accusations. People are telling me that it's risky to go into flexion when it's the most comfortable movement, when I had my injury. I want to know why flexion is a risky or dangerous movement. Okay, first of all... The um, repeated flexion loading that you did, in my opinion, and 
we can't know for certain because I wasn't there with it inside your disc looking at what was happening at the time you're doing these things before you hurt yourself. So we can't know that. But it is my opinion that the repeated load deflection was the reason why you tore the posterior aspect of your annulus and ultimately went on to have some sort of internal disc mechanics which went wrong, which actually caused probably some extrusion, which caused your nerve root radiculopathy symptoms. That's the, if you like, the, the very brief summary of what I believe happened. Now, why would you okay. go on to do flexion as a treatment when it was like when you the cause appeared to be repeated because it was comfortable because it was comfortable and it reduced my symptoms and the dynamic disc model is flawed here so again where is the flaw the dynamic disc model is flawed to the belief that going into flexion causes disc herniations to progress and worsen hasn't been conclusively proven so posterior lateral disc herniations oh, have actually been yeah. seen to reduce. Scott, I, no, 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 you, you keep what you run on here, but you actually made a statement there that I have, have an issue with, and that is, is that you say it hasn't been proven, but you can't say just because something hasn't been proven is they're automatically flawed. Because people are certain about the dynamic disc model. So you go into flexion, you're going to make posterior lateral disc herniations worse. You go into extension, you're going to reduce them. That's the dynamic disc model. Not all, at all. No, that's that's what, not that's true. What a lot of them. That that is what a lot of the clinicians. Well, a lot of people. We're talking about, we're talking about you and me here. Okay. Adam. okay well, uh, but, but what my okay. argument is. So, Mark, what Mark? In, you, in your opinion, what is that? How does that dynamic this model work? Let's get that first. In Mark, what, how do you think it works, or how do you? How do I it think works? it works? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm not claiming omniscience here. Let's get it straight. Okay, how do I yeah. think it works? All right, I think what happens is that if you do too much flexion and you have an injury to the posterior part of your disc, you threaten the possibility of increasing displacement again. Now, the body will heal. If you tear the posterior annulus, it is not only innovative, so it hurts like shit, all right, but also it has a blood supply and it heals like a ligament. Not as well as other ligaments, perhaps. It's got similar characteristics as anterior cruciate ligament, but it does actually heal. And Adams, apparently, and many patients do, actually get better, and they can tolerate flexion very quickly. It happens. Just like when you sprain an ankle. Some people can go on doing inversion very quickly afterwards, and some people cannot. It's, it's no different from a sprained ankle in that respect. The point here is, is that that why would you, if you if you have a, if if the logic of it or the, the history is repeated flexion was actually the onset mechanism. Why would you then go on continuing spraining your ankle, if you like, as a treatment? That's my question. And and, and I and, and that's, that's what I that's why I pose the questions. Yeah, so, so Adam Adam respond to that. What why if 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 that's the hypothesis that you know flexion was the cause of the injury, why carry on flexing? So it wasn't my only management strategy, as I already said at the beginning. All right, I wasn't just purely flexing all the time, every ah. bloody opportunity. Ah. I was using it. I was using it intermittently, like I was using all the other movements as well. And I was using it because it was the most comfortable movement. It was the one that sort of relieved my symptoms the most. Um, but uh, again, answer the question of why do I use um, the mechanism of injury as a treatment is because I want to make those areas strong and robust and resilient again so they don't injure. And the only way of doing that is by exposure to the forces and the stresses and the stimuluses that they're going to be experiencing when I go back to doing those tasks again. So I use graded exposure.
I understand that. So on day two, when you are doing a bell, a kettlebell um, inflection like that, that seems reasonable yeah, to you because it didn't hurt. It didn't. It didn't work. I mean, there's a movie of it. I mean, it's not. It's not this is not a. This is not. This, I'm not making some sort of weird statement here. I'm watching. I'm watching a movie, and here, here's a guy who hurt himself doing deadlifts with 180 kilograms, hurting his back, and two days later or one day later, he's. Got a, got a kettlebell in his hand, which looks like around about 5 kg, doing flexions. And I'm thinking, why would so you do that? How much do you think, uh, I don't know, a small child or a bag of shopping weighs, Mark, when you pick it up off the floor? But I'm not asking you to do that when People you've got acute to. severe back pain. Yes, I know they have to, and they, and they, get, they get by as best they can. People with broken legs yeah, run exactly. away from tigers so, too. Again, sometimes it's not a matter of, of, of wanting to. It's sometimes a matter of it, it's just... It's not good for the broken good. leg, though. It's not good for the broken leg, but the alternative is dying. You know, I mean, seriously, um, it's not recommended. Because of why? What adverse factor did I have or experience, do you think, from doing that? Oh, you went on and get radiculopathy. That's what I think. Exactly my point, Mark. And the research know. tells us that. And the evidence tells us that. And the clinical experience tells us that. So why are we so certain in telling people not to do things? The, re the research does not tell you that the person in acute severe back pain will not go on to get radiculopathy if they continue to do what I do or what you do. In either case. My only, my only comment was, was that why do you do the thing that actually caused the damage in the acute phase? Because it didn't hurt. It bloody well did. You said it did. No, it didn't hurt when I was doing it after. You did a whole lot of things that hurt, like hanging. You said it hurts like a mother, you said. Yeah, but I didn't injure myself. And then you're lying there with your, your, your hips over, hanging in flexion. You're doing flexion in, with, with, with traction. And you're, and you're saying it hurts like a mother. I think, why do you choose that painful movement when you wouldn't choose extension and, and correcting the shift or attempt to get that corrected when it was the obvious thing, which you said on day two, it's obstructed, it's blocked it. I can't do it. I tried, Mark. It feels I tried to do those movements. Like, I, no, I, said, I know you did, and you failed. As I've said numerous, you did. I as I've said numerous times, Mark, I did not have one particular strategy that I was following. I did not have one movement that I was doing more than the others. Now, the videos may have presented it that way because I only had a couple of minutes. You were avoiding extension. No, I wasn't avoiding extension. So. I wasn't avoiding extension. Oh, come on. You said I was trying to go into extension. I'm, 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 look, I'm, look, I'm looking right here as on uh, a week after my back injury, and despite it still hurts like a mother, I went to the gym, just kept it simple, and avoided lumbar extension. That's what you've got written there. It's written there on your own bloody videos for Instagram. For that one particular... I'm looking at Mark, it right Mark, now. Mark, Mark, let me finish. Mark, for that one session, for that one gym session, I didn't do anything that provoked me by going into extension because I wanted a day without provoking things. However, the following okay. day, I did. I was doing cat camels. I was doing trying to go up, propping up onto my elbows. I was working into extension the following day. Okay. So I wasn't avoiding anything. Is it not? Is it reasonable to assume that if you had an annular tear or you know a, a, a disc injury, if that was the, the the initial the onset, and that's fair enough to assume, when you flexed forward using those models of that you know dynamic disc arrangement or the you know the cadaveric studies which have been done on disc, that that did increase that chance of that herniation? 
not in my opinion and not in my based on my reading. So I have seen a number of studies done in vivo of people with disc herniations who go into flexion shows actual reduction of disc herniations. So we got um, Alias 2018 in clinical radiology who showed, I think, about five subjects with posterior lateral disc herniations under dynamic MRIs going into flexion and showing a reduction of disc herniation in flexion. So why isn't that beneficial? And, 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 and what's more, that was actually shown back in 19, oh God, 1930, no, 19, early 1940s, they showed actually people in, in, in prone like doing that, that the actual posterior wall of the disc actually flattens and actually reduces. That's been known a long, long time. That doesn't alter anything, actually, because that's only the posterior wall coming tight. And it, so long as the thing is contained, flexion will temporarily reduce the actual amount of bulging. But if you keep on doing it, it increases the bulging. So we also know that repeated flexion causes positive disc adaption. So we also know from other studies done... Oh, yeah, over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, again, we know that we've got studies that show with people who do regular rowing, who do um, cycling in sustained and repeated flex positions, actually have superior disc structure compared to those individuals who don't... No, they have superior hydration. Superior disc structures, okay... Hydration. So, mostly. so does that not mean that we know that their disc annulus is not superior either? Uh, not necessarily, but, it, but we also know that increased hydration is a greater risk for herniation. So, again, all I'm saying is that flexion has not been seen consistently to be seen as a a causative factor to disc structure deterioration. Um, no, I wouldn't say the evidence is conclusive one way or the other on that. To be honest, yeah. so we can't. Um, I think, I th I think no, 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 that's fair. But I, but there are there are there are studies that show that repeated flexion is the only way to get a disc herniation in the model in in, in the cadaveric model. And we also know that people, for example, who've been in microgravity, like up in the space station for a period, that in the media in the immediate period following them coming back to. Um, uh, Bellevue, I think it is, uh, immediate period coming back from um, space, that they have an extremely high risk of disc herniation because of the increased hydration of their disc. So hydration itself is really important because it actually means also that's part of the nutritional exchange that occurs within the disc. This is really important. But we also, uh, but we also know that when the disc is super hydrated, then we are more at risk. And the fact is, we also know that in, when our discs are hydrated, like in the first half of the day, the first four hours, after getting out of bed, that that's when most of the acute back pain episodes actually occur. Yep. So, um, so there is there is evidence to show that hydration is not a good measure of disc health. And we know sedentariness can can be a driver of these factors as well. Like you said, unloading. Sorry, what, what, deep, no, I, I missed. I missed. That we bit. could we could also, as you said, with these studies done on the NASA astronauts, we know that unloading or sedentariness could be a key driver as well for disc degeneration. So Absolutely. I don't think flexion of the spine is what actually causes disc to degenerate. It is sedentariness and sitting on the sofa. That's the things that are more dangerous and risky. Not bending over and doing deadlifts or doing repeated flexion. It's the fact that people don't do that. There's also the hypothesis as well, Adam, that, the, that you can't avoid flexion. So that no, you can't avoid in, in general life, you can't live without. Uh, we know we can't avoid flexion. So that daily flexion is is, and that disc bulges are a normal, a normal aspect of life because we can't avoid flexion. So that you could also consider it from that side. So that these are normal changes, which they do happen to everyone, because of the repeated flexion that we do on a daily basis anyway, which is unavoidable. Just by the way, regarding rowers, 
right? You made the comment that rowers don't have a higher incidence of back pain. They do actually. No, I said they have better disc structure. They don't have a higher incidence. They, they don't have a higher incidence of back pain than the general population. Uh, actually, actually, they do. No. The evidence is quite clear that elite rowers actually have one of the highest incidence of back pain, and it is higher than the average uh, of the the general population. So about eighty percent. These people are young, fit, strong, powerful people. Okay, eighty percent. The where my study that I read on uh, rowers, can't remember the it's name. Like Tropeter. No, I think it was uh, Franken this year. Franken's. Yeah, why? Well, Okay, well, here we're competing with our references, but Trumpeter did a hot bit over a thousand elite rowers in, in Germany. Um, and they found that they, that I think, was rowers, um, rowers, and there's um, the people at the lowest incident was golfers, shooters, and, um, and triathletes. And one of the highest was rowers, uh, were highest was rowers and cyclists. So, that, so flexion actually is a risk factor because that's a, those are flexion activities for, for elite athletes anyway. So the the rate the it's rates I've seen in rowing are about eighty percent. Eighty percent of rowers, okay, complain of an episode of back pain, and in the general and in the general population, eighty percent is it that high? Yeah, but what's it in the general? Po- well, that is. But what's it in the general population, Mark? The general population is there on any one day, and seventeen point five percent of the population will have back pain in any one week. About 30. so we're talking the difference of point prevalence versus general prevalence, okay? So I'm talking about. Well, yeah, that, that's I mean, that, the incidences of a lifetime episode of back pain in the general population. Lifetime, yeah, lifetime. Eighty. Yeah. You're talking about eight rowers. You're talking about a rowers. They haven't had a life yet. No, but they're, they're, during their life of rowing, eighty percent of rowers will complain. Oh no! Come on, you can't be a lifetime with a life of rowing. Okay. You can't make that. That's not a comparison. That's reasonable. All right. Well, I would argue that, I mean, that yes, back pain is common in sports that involve flexion. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not arguing that. So I'd say you know, cyclists and rowers do commonly complain of back pain, but it isn't always down to the fact that it's damaging their structures. It could actually be due to other factors. For example, um, load management, stress, all the other things that go on in life. Why that, oh, why, why would it have hit the back? Why not? What? Well, no, no, not why not. Why, why specifically back pain? Why don't they? Why don't they have leg pains and shoulder pains and what have you, which is just as uh, increased frequency? Why is it back pain that is so prevalent? Because again, there probably is down to some mechanical factors. So it's due to the sustained. Yeah, it could be down to sustained loading. So it could be a load management issue. Yeah, low inflection. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's damaging their structures. It doesn't mean it's causing detriment or harm to them. <laughs> well, well, I think we might have to differ on that one. Well, well, well harm, harm doesn't necessarily mean pain, and pain doesn't always mean harm. And I think that's the... Well, no, know, pain is the experience, but pain, but pain is contingent upon input, is, and it's not just an output. It, it's, not just, it's not an output out of context. It's an output as a consequence of input. That's what the brain does with input. No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. Right. Yeah, as we, as we said at the beginning, pain is pain is an input, you know, output from the brain. At the end of the day, isn't it? It's. I mean, you, you you can create you can create experiments where you can make a person feel pain without there being any obvious input. They have the old rubber hand experiment, for example. But that's an experimental, really bizarre arrangement. I'm talking about everyday life now. You know, nociception is a almost a precondition for the experience of pain, except in a very small minority of people, and they do exist. 
where we can't find any nociception at all, but they've got a lot of pain. Absolutely, I see those on a daily basis now, but that's not that's not that's not the most usual thing. No, that's that's fine. So I think that kind of covers a lot of flexion. The only thing we kind of left out was the was the deadlifts, and obviously deadlifts being the 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 movement that you know whether you say caused or not you know triggered that that episode of back pain at, at the time. Mark, do you? Use deadlifts as part of a rehab, introducing spinal flexion. Do you actually avoid them in 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 patients, or is it something which you use? Well, I don't I don't avoid deadlifts, but I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't avoid deadlifts at all because they're an excellent it's an excellent exercise. It's great for the hams, great for the glutes, great for the extensors, um, all of those things. That's it's and and when done properly, it's also good for the abs. But I think that um, you know there's no there's no question about that. But I wouldn't do it in flexion. So, but then I can see no value. In how that. does that fit with a lot of the research that? Flexion is unavoidable when you when you do a deadlift. You know that that L four R five S one. You know I, I... Well, that 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 is true. That is true. Just as flexion is unavoidable when you row, but the point is is that um, that that I'm I, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not I'm not a flexion avoider. Um, that that's that that would be a, that would be a, a misrepresentation. I've, I'm not a flexion avoider. Not in general. I do it avoid flexion as I avoid extension under, under certain circumstances, and as I avoid other movements because they're necessary to avoid at times. But that's and it's usually for a short period. But I'm not a I'm not an avoider of any bloody thing. What I'm what what I as to me flexion. You cannot live a life without flexion. You have to restore that as part of your rehab. Now you can restore that with a variety of things, but I wouldn't do it with loaded deadlifts in flexion. I don't think it's a good way to do it. I think it's too much. Mark, you can't deadlift without spinal flexion. Even when you think you're keeping no, I... your spine in neutral, you have got between 50 to 80% of maximal spinal flexion occurring. But why accentuate it? Why accentuate it, um, Adam? So go, why go, make a go, thing of it? Go into you know, maximal flexion under load sometimes, again, can create positive adaptions. And it can also sometimes allow an individual to build trust and confidence when they don't have to go into full flexion. So sometimes it's better to, tr sometimes I, it's better I, to train I, and prepare for things that aren't going to happen rather than be unprepared for things that do happen. Very militaristic, I get that. Um, are you there? <laughs> And, that, and that, that's fine, actually. I, I don't. Ha I don't actually have an issue with that, Adam, at all. What I do have an issue with is that a person who come who comes to me who says that I, I get pain every time I sit, I do prolonged bending, every time I do prolonged sitting and slouching. All right, then I wouldn't give them flexion loaded flexion as an exercise. I think that's silly. I don't. I don't. I don't. Think, I don't think that you're going to help. Yeah, no, I'm, we're on the same page. Well, there we you go. Know. We're not. We're in agreement. But the point is, is that if you're talking about people who don't have that history. All right, then I see no reason why they can't do flexion in any way they like. But I still probably wouldn't advise it done heavy loads done in super flexion. You can't avoid a certain amount of flexion. That's absolutely correct. Any more than you can't avoid a certain amount of flexion sitting in a motor car. Doesn't matter whether you have a lumbar roll behind your back or not. You still can't avoid it. But you can minimise that. You can you can decrease the deleterious effects of that. And there are deleterious effects because people tell you that the more I sit in the muddy motor car, the worse my pain gets. But again, but, just because the pain gets worse, just because somebody has pain doesn't mean that they are damaging or they're having deleterious effects to their structure, Mark. That's the point. Pain, pain is poorly correlated to tissue structure and status. We know that. As, as determined by what, Adam? As determined by a wide body of evidence and research. 
Mark. No, 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 no. Give us an example. Are you talking about MRI or are you talking about cadaveric studies or what what are you actually talking about? I'm talking about numerous different studies that have shown pathology in asymptomatic people, so-called pathology in completely pain-free asymptomatic people. Oh, you're talking about false positive stuff on MRI and stuff. Oh, of course. So so we do know that, that, you can that, have... That, that, that doesn't prove anything. It does. It shows us we can have structural changes without symptoms. But it doesn't tell you that you can't... That you, that, that doesn't tell you that pain can exist without structural changes. Yes, it change. does. It doesn't tell you we that. also see that as well. We also see people who have <laughs> clear scans who have no signs of any structural changes but significant amounts of pain, Mark. I see that clinically every bloody day. Well, that... No, that is absolutely true, but they're usually not in acute pain. These are chronic pain patients, right? But that doesn't mean it can't happen in acute situations. People can have... You say that acute acute pain can occur in the absence of any structural change? This is a bit of a contentious area, and I'm not going to want to go down this rabbit hole with Mm. regards to the whole... Because it it is uncertain. (laughs) It is uncertain, Mark, and I agree. And and I'm not going to let my pendulum swing that. I'm not going to let my pendulum swing that far. So I would say that. I would argue argue that would be a rabbit hole that would not be wise to go down for a very simple reason that I think that, that we may not be able to image or we may not be able to actually identify the structure. At, that is causing the acute pain in this particular case in this particular time. That is true. It doesn't mean to say to say that you can get an acute onset of pain without any structural damage. I think is stretching. It's uncertain. A band. Way it's uncertain, tight. Mark, because there could be potential sources of <laughs> pain that we are unable to detect. So I get that. There are there are sometimes, you know, mm. there's the nasty, sinister things that you can't see straight away. Some people have a faith in other yeah, things you too. can't see mm. things straight away. You can't assess or diagnose things straight away that could be, you know, causes that are pathology or causes of pain. I get that. So I am uncertain. Well, what about, what about a migraine? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very acute example of, of, of pain with no pathology. Well, you say it's no pathology. Is that no known pathology? Fair. Yeah, or brain freeze. You know what? Brain freeze. You know, where you, you you suck an ice cube and it and it you get that horrible headache pain immediately when you eat ice cream too fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Absolutely. I, I mean, my, my, I don't actually get that very much, but my wife gets it really badly. Um, but uh, but uh, and and that uh, you are saying that that's not a it's not a pathology, but it's certainly an event that it, that is a known cause. You, if if I put if I put an ice block, uh, put my hand in ice, and my hand my, and within a minute my hand is is aching, that's not a pathology. It's just a brain reporting yeah. that if you keep on doing that, you're going to get frostbite. Yeah, fair. All right, so that's that's a warning sign of pathology. Yeah. It's not pathology itself. Warning signs happen all the time. Brain freeze is just a warning sign. But there would be no pathology to show. But if you, kept, if, you, if you kept ice in your mouth all the time, you would suffer damage, right? Yeah. Eventually, you'd suffer damage somewhere. Not necessarily to the brain, but I think you might you might get frostbite in your mouth. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe avoid that one then for <laughs> for the foreseeable. So, so just th- those are not, no, not they're not examples of um, nociceptive or, or damage free um, pain. Not, not not good examples. I don't. Okay. Think. Can we agree that pain is complex and there's a lot of uncertainty around its relationship to pathology and certain structures? Is that something we all agree on? 
It's uns- uh, when you say it's uncertain, there is a degree, uh, there is a degree of certainty under certain circumstances, and that has fuzzy edges. Yeah. Okay. There are. You're right. There are circumstances mm-hmm. where pain is more likely to be diagnosed as a stroke. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll say one more thing though about that is that those fuzzy edges, you can either attempt to increase or decrease the fuzziness. My objective in life has always been to try and decrease the fuzziness. Yep. No, no, that's, I think that's totally fair. So, I, I, you know, we, I'm conscious of time. I kind of want to wrap this up in the next kind of 10, 15 minutes to kind of make sure everyone's get their points across. And the last thing we, we wanted to, to touch on was this idea of non-specific low back pain, which I know is far bigger topic than we've got for 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll blow that up. So That's pretty simple for me. I, there's not much to discuss there. Okay, so what, we'll start with you then, Mark. So what does, non-specific. What does non-specific mean to you then, Mark? It means you don't know what's going on. Yeah, Adam? <laughs> At all. Uh, non-specific, no, the very word, the hold on. Let, let, let me make sure. No, 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 no I'm not trying to be cute here. I'm not trying to be cute. I, I just, non-specific means is that the person making the statement does not believe that they know or it is possible to know a specific cause or source of that person's pain. Okay, Adam. Okay. Okay. That's what non-specific actually means. The origin, the origin of the concept of non-specific low back pain, and which then went on to be non-specific neck pain and shoulder pain, but non-specific low back pain is where it all started. The non-specific concept began with people like Gordon Waddell, who were being constantly pestered by GPs to, uh, with a single a question that was repeated time and time again. This is what Gordon Waddell told me in 2004 at a conference. We had a long discussion on it. And, and I asked him, I said, where does the non-specific come from? And he says, well, I, I, have, I have a feeling that I might be partly responsible for that. And, and I said, well, what actually happened? He says, well, the GPs were constantly asking me which patients to send with back pain to the surgeon. And the surgeon says, and he said, I only want to see people with red flags and people who have clear evidence of radiculopathy. So everything else, it's not specific to me. Just go and send it to the physiotherapist. Don't want to know about those. It's a black box to the average orthopedic surgeon. So that's what he advised GPs. Now, how that transferred over to people who have to deal with the black box and suddenly becomes a, a condition a disease that everybody wants to do RCTs on beggars belief because it's non-specific. It's like a symptom. You, like you would never do a randomised controlled trial on non-specific chest pain comparing anti-inflammatories with um, something to, for heart attacks, would you? Why do you, why do you do that with backs? It's ridiculous. You wouldn't do that with non-specific abdominal pain or non-specific knee pain. Why backs? It's 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 a useless concept. It tells you you, you don't want do it a lot with IBS though, Mark. Eh? Okay, Adam. Adam, so over to you. Okay, well, I, one thing I want to say about non-specific low back pain is is it is a shitty term. All right, it can hugely demean and invalidate a person's experience of their current back pain. So I am not. A Thank fan. you, Adam. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So I, I am not a fan of the term non-specific back pain to be said to patients because it is it's a shitty term. But what non-specific 
low back pain means to me as a clinician is that after I've done a full and thorough detailed history examination, that there's often a lot of uncertainty around a specific source of their back pain. It's a diagnosis of exclusion of, as Mark said, the specific stuff. I've done to the best of my ability, excluded the serious and sinister nasty stuff, hopefully, um, and there is no clear ridiculous syndromes going on. But this doesn't mean that when I give some, or when I don't give somebody the diagnosis, when I'm thinking I've got somebody with a diagnosis of a non-specific low back pain, this doesn't mean that I don't think there isn't potentially one or two or even more structural causes of their pain. It doesn't mean that I think their back pain is all psychological and there is no biomechanical or tissue related cause of their back pain. All it means is that I am unable to be certain with any amount of probability or, or good probability that I am able to determine the particular one, two or three potential sources of pain from each other. So again, this sometimes non-specific back pain gets thrown around and it sometimes gets demonized because it's saying, oh, well, you're just saying this person's making their back pain up. You think it's all in their bloody head. You think it's psychosocial factors. And, and that is not what non-specific low back pain is saying at all. It's just saying we have to be rational and reasonable and understand that our ability after we have done our tests, our exams, our scans and our procedures to be accurate and reliable and say, aha, this is where this pain is coming from. I know it's this from this is just not there. Mark, do you agree with that? Can I, uh, can I ask a, uh, Well, can I ask a question, actually? Uh, for example, there are certain signs and symptoms or uh, collections of signs and symptoms that have really high specificity to particular pathologies. All right, now, if that is the case, and when, when you know that something's highly specific, then actually the diagnosis is reasonably certain. We don't necessarily need to know what it is. That, that that's true, but when we do know it, then it ceases to be non-specific. This is true, for example, we know that a person has a prolapse just 95% of the time if they've got um, a dominant leg pain with a, a straight leg raised limitation and uh, cross leg sign and uh, a weak big toe or something like that. We know the chances of that being anything else other than a herniated disc is actually rather small. Okay, but that's 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 the business of that's what makes it specific, if you like. If you had, if I were to say so that doesn't come under non-specific low back pain. No, of course not. But I mean, that's that's one of the examples used in specific back pain, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I were to say to you that the specificity of uh, the centralization phenomenon and directional preference is equally as specific as those sets of signs for ridiculous syndromes for herniated disc. Why wouldn't you, why, if I were to say that's just as specific for discogenic pain, why wouldn't you call it discogenic pain? Because I'd still got uncertainty around that that's the only sort. But you've got uncertainty. The only but you've got uncertainty with what they're calling specific is, anyway. Is pain just singular factor, Mark? Do you think it's only the disc that's... No, of course not. I've never, no, never claimed so, that. I'm so, not, not suggesting So we could that. say that, yes, okay, after you've done your tests and your assessments, you've got some probability that this structure could be involved. It's not only that structure. There are other things that could be contributing to this person's experience of pain as well. And the other thing is, does it actually change our management? Do we need to have this specific diagnosis to be able to treat it better? Well, actually, yes. Go on then. Let, why is that? <laughs> 
Well, okay. I'm, I, it's, it's not difficult. I mean, for example, a person comes in with back yep. pain and they are a rah and they, get, they have a clear directional preference to extension. Yep. And they, so I give them extension for a period, then I reintroduce their flexion okay. later. That's a specific management protocol. A different person comes in. But that's not, that's not specific for a structure. Yes, it bloody is. What structure? Disc. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's my research. You know, hold on. You're talking about my core technology here. Why? That's why? what I did why my PhD in. Oh, come on. If you've not read my papers, then that's your problem. You said yourself, when some, you said yourself the McKenzie method doesn't need a structural diagnosis. No, no you're, you're, you're evading the point. The point is, is we, no, no, no. No, no, I'm, I'm no you're evading point. it. I'm sorry. Look, listen, I have, we have, I have tested this and published my results. It's out there. We have found that. So I, 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 I'm, I'm well aware of some of your published yeah, research, well, Mark. Well, just to say that it. you've got a rower who gets pain, who gets pain in repeated flexion. No, 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 no. And that's no, you're ignoring disc. my actual results here, Adam. We found that patients who had a directional preference to one direction or another, and their pain centralised, that the probability that they had. Pain reproduced reliably okay, and consistently. You said, by, come back. So you're not you're not you're not just saying flexion. You're talking about yeah, centralization yeah. of pain based yeah. either on flexion yeah. well, or extension. It's, it is usually my mistake. It's usually my apologies. Extension. I thought my apologies. I, okay, my apologies. I thought you were you, when you said flexion. I thought you were just talking about the flexion movement being no. diagnostic of a disc injury. No, I've never said okay, that. Okay, good. Never my mistake. That. I misinterpreted. Okay. I misheard. Centralization of symptoms, we have documented clearly, has a specificity in people who are non-distressed of virtually close on 100%. It's better than what the surgeons call highly specific when they have their ridiculous syndrome pattern. It's better than that. Now, when we have, when we have people who do not centralize and we have three or more pain provocation tests of the sacroiliac joint that are positive, the specificity for that is around 90% or more. Now, that's not bloody bad. Now, when I see that pattern, I don't call that non-specific back pain. I call it SIJ pain. When the probability of being wrong, me being wrong, is around 10%. I know, I know my error, Adam. I know my, my I've published my no, error. I, Mark, it, it was my misunderstanding. I thought you were talking no, about reflection no. preference being like, no, okay. As I just said, it was my mistake. I misheard you. So centralization, yeah, with a certain pattern of presentations, mechanisms of injuries, perhaps, you know, in certain individuals, yes, I, I will concur, gives you a higher Much probability higher. of a disc-related problem. Yeah. Okay. And and again, SIJ diagnostic tests, again, your cluster as well. Yes, I know statistically does. Give you've got no, but hold on. And it's not just a SIJ provocation test. It's within a context as well. I get, that's exactly what I was just saying. And that's the same with centralization yeah. as well, Mark. That's, that's what I was saying as well. So, you know, based on their history, their mechanisms of injury, their ags and their eases, all those sort of things as well. I get that. that no, you can, you can increase your probability in some cases of back pain and have a higher um, probability of a specific structure. But the question a reasonably, is... A reasonably, reasonably close to certainty. Okay. Well, if you want to go that... You want to be that certain, great. I don't want to put well, my... No, um, I've measured it. I've like, measured it. Great. Okay. Well, I'm not going to put my eggs in that basket. I've published my error. I, I have no problem with this. I've published so, my but, error but, rate. Did, but, but the, I've never my question before. remains, though, Mark, is does it actually change management? Yes, it does. 
How? Yes, it does. How? A lot. How? 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 Well, okay, I gave you the example of the person with directional preference. Then you have the same person who comes in with a similar pain, and they're a cricketer, and they've been fast bowling, and they've got a stress fracture in their back. That's the same pain, but it's not. A, it's a completely different specific type of pain. And what's more, we can make that diagnosis. We actually need to use, uh, we can use Vibe now, which is MRI, which is non-invasive. But the important thing is, is that is that that's a back pain. It was otherwise, if you don't actually look, you wouldn't know that that is a stress fracture. We, Mark, a stress fracture but it is, is a, stress a specific fracture. diagnosis. That's not a absolutely it is. Yeah, because it doesn't fit into non-specific low back pain. And again, you're going to have a higher suspicion based on the clinical examination in your history. It's the other way around. All right. What ha- what is not specific is what you've got after you've taken out the specifics. That's exactly what. And I'm if you keep on doing that, yeah, huh? okay, that's exactly what we're agreeing on. That's what we're saying. You've got a lot of back pain left at the end. Sorry, Rob. You've got a lot of back pain in in people where you've excluded stress fractures, spinal malignancies, SIJs ridiculous syndromes there's a there's a stack load of back pain in a lot of the population pain. yeah there's a stack. and there's still there's still a, still a residue left which is called non-specific so, so, but the question with that then so do, does that non-specific low back pain have to be diagnosed further in order to treat it and that goes back we've taken out the stress we've taken out the pathology we've taken out the things no, not necessarily at all. No, 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 no. Only if it goes on and on and on and the treatments have been failing, then you need to know. Okay, so I think, Adam, you'd probably agree with that as well. You don't you don't need to diagnose that non-specific back pain further in order to treat it. Yeah, my again, that's what I was trying to get at. My original point is, is you exclude the specific things, okay, to the best of your ability, and then there's a lot of people out there that don't have specific pathologies on clinical assessment that still have back pain that we are uncertain of a structural diagnosis. And there are plenty of people out there for whom we do have a specific diagnosis, but we don't need to know about it either. So what what would you, again, based on my reading, I've got a a figure in my head. I'll be interested to know what your figure in your head, Mark. What percentage of back pain do you think you can specifically diagnose with a structural cause? Mm. Roughly. 70 to 80 percent. Wow. What was yours, Adam? About 10 to 20 percent. And is that basically? Well, I've published mine. I, so this, uh, this, this tells me we've got a big mismatch here, and either I'm pretty shit or Mark's um, overestimating. I'm not, I, I, look, what I do is not special. I'm, I'm serious. It's not special, Adam. It's not. I, my, my assessment, if you look at my, 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 my assessment, it takes a while and I do a lot of questionnaires and I look at the psychosocial, I do all of that stuff. But, but, you know, but what I do is not particularly special. It's been around a long, long time. I don't have any special golden tests which are unique to me. And all. I don't have any of that stuff. I don't need it. All right. I do a basic, I, I look at my patients, I assess their basic movements, I do a, I do a, um, a full neuro assessment for most patients, except if they only just have back pain, I don't bother. Um, I do the sacroiliac joint tests and I do the repetitive movement tests. And if I need to, I add a hip joint test, all right, which is standard orthopedic medicine type things. That's all I do. And from that, I can get 60, well, 70 to 80%, I think I get it right. Okay. 
I don't, I don't. I don't think it's rocket science. I really don't. I don't, I don't think, it, I think I don't it's think rocket, rocket science either, Mark. I, 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 what you just described there sounds a bit much like what I would do in my assessment of somebody with back pain, and I probably estimate a lot of uh, good evidence-based trained clinicians and therapists would also go through that same assessment procedure. But I, I just disagree that seek that after all that. The six many therapists will say they have got a diagnosis sixty to seventy percent of the time with any certainty. I agree that most therapists don't do that. No, I and I also agree that you don't necessarily have to do that either. I think that you can do it, and you need and you can do it when you need to do it in order to treat those people who have failed treatment, good quality treatment, which is what I see mostly these days. Okay, okay, that that sums up. So. I think then we'll, we'll try and wrap this up now because we've been going for our, our allocated 90 minutes and I'm conscious of both of your times. And I know you're, you're both rather, rather busy, although it's nine o'clock at night here, but uh, as Marx is starting his day. So I think like what, what I'd like to end on is, is kind of a two-minute summary, and I, I will cut you off after two minutes if you're, if, if you're going longer than that. So what I'd like to kind of understand is if there's anything which today you heard from the other side that you'd like to go away and consider more, or you'd like to that helped you understand their point further after discussions today. So if we start with start with Adam, I went first first time. Adam can go first this time. <laughs> um, I okay. Well, I think my I am I'm, I'm I, I was anticipating this conversation to go pretty much the way it has gone. Um, I think there's still a lot of. Um, disagreement between me and Mark's thoughts and opinions about our ability to accurately diagnose and the need for specific diagnosis and specific methods and treatments for back pain. So I think there's still, you know, room there to perhaps negotiate and try to meet in the middle. Um, but I'm just going to finish off and just say that, you know, to anybody listening out there, that back pain is a common human affliction. Um, it's a bit like a common cold. And just like the common cold, back pain is uncomfortable, annoying and frustrating. But also, just like the common cold, back pain has a favourable natural history with time alone that often doesn't need much in the way of assessment or intervention. So when people go to see a doctor with a cold, often the doctor is not going to overtreat that. They're not going to give them antibiotics. They're going to give them reassurance. They've got a common cold, give them some advice to go and drink plenty of fluids, rest on the sofa, maybe have a glass of honey and lemon or something. So when a physio sees somebody with back pain or another therapist sees somebody with back pain, Again, most of the time after a thorough examination, the job of a therapist is to exclude the serious and sinister and specific stuff and then reassure somebody with back pain that it has a favorable natural history and doesn't need to be overtreated. They're not going to worry them and tell them that their pelvis is out of place or their psoas is overactive or they've got wobbly, crumbly discs or whatever. Uh, and they shouldn't be overtreating it with too much hands-on treatment or machines or anything along those lines. So my, my final thing is back pain is like a common cold a lot of the time. Yep. And Mark, your, your, your two-minute summary, anything which you would go away and consider further, go and research more, or might have changed your opinion based on the chat this evening? There, there, there is actually little that I would disagree with in terms of what Adam has just said, by the way. Um, I often use the common cold analogy. I, um, that I often do do that, and I and I and that's and he's quite right. I do disagree on one level, and that is that um, that the prognosis, which is touted to be highly um, 
very good is much less good than has been often stated in the guidelines. Um, no, you've you've done your two minutes. Um, <laughs> Put your hand down, Adam. <laughs> but you know, and you know, and I and I I and I want to say as a final thing that I want to absolutely congratulate uh, Adam in the courage that he showed in being willing to put himself up there in front of people, showing how going through his processes. Um, that that is uh, enormous, actually, and I uh, and I take my hat off to you. And um, and uh, I, you have done very very well, and for which I'm actually I'm, I'm very happy about that. And um, so we do disagree on a number of things, which I um, which we uh, is acknowledged, um, particularly in the acute phase. Not actually once you started to get better, and the way you managed your radiculopathy is absolutely fine. And I and I really um, have no issues with that at all. Um, uh, it's just the acute phase that I was particularly concerned about. And so, from from this point on, um, I think that diagnostics is not always necessary. Certainly not in the acute phase, but in the chronic, um, when the patient has persistent pain, then that becomes much more important. So, and we need the full range of our abilities um, and our analysis. Actually, it's more about analysis rather than specific technologies. Actually. So, no, I'm really happy. Thanks very much, guys, for inviting us to talk. That's um, much appreciated. And hope all you all will keep well and um, get yourself vaccinated and get on with it for those, uh, for those people out there who are hesitant. Um, I, I understand you have the right to be wrong, <laughs> and uh, that's okay with me. <laughs> that's, that's a really good note to end on. So, so chaps, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your, your, your day or your evening to, to talk to us. It's been, been enlightening. I hope everyone that's listening has taken something away from this, hopefully positive, hopefully has made them go home and think about something or do some more research or change their approach with the patient tomorrow, which is what we're all about, is, is, is improving people's outcomes. And we're all on the same page here. Everyone's trying for the same outcome. We're all trying to help patients. We're all trying to make people better. And that's what we're all striving for. So let's all you know try and do that in the best way we can. So thanks very much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will catch you on the next episode. Over and out. Thank you. Cheers.